Welcome to the Abstract Veterans Podcast. Today, Char Gatlin and Kevin Sickinger speak with Cindy Laukas. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Athlete for further information and news. The Abstract Veterans Podcast with Char Gatlin and Kevin Sickinger. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to season two of the Abstract Veterans Series podcast. That's right, folks, season two, we made it through season one. Now, being transparent, we didn't pay anybody. So the government steering committees allowed us to come back and have some fun. But this year, we're going to do it a little bit differently. And uh, I'll let my co-host, Dr. Colonel Retired, rather, Kevin Sickinger, explain here in just a minute. Last year that we did a lot of research focused interviews with folks in the Limbic Sensi Consortium and others that were doing psychological health and traumatic brain injury research, but their focus was more of a top-down approach. We thought this year we would do it a little bit differently. Um, CDMRP and some of the other major funding sources that fund TBI and psychological health research have kind of opened it up a little bit, looking at more sort of holistic ways to approach it, looking at caregivers, other stakeholders, other populations, um, to include military sexual trauma, to include other forms of PTSD. So in essence, they're, they're opening it up. And what we wanted to do is sort of capture that by bringing in a lot of individuals or stakeholders in this case that have experience, you know, in dealing with a lot of vulnerable populations, folks with TBIs, families, caregivers, and, you know, dealing with, with the impacts of the injury in their community. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to my co-host this year, uh, Kevin. And Dr. Seal is still around, folks. Let's keep that in mind. I know some of you are probably going to miss him. I miss him myself. But this year, as we do more of the stakeholder and the bottom up, we're going to be working with Kevin a little bit more. And then sometimes if we, I think we have a couple of uh, researchers coming down uh, at the top level, and we'll bring Dr. Seal back and always, always fun to kind of listen to his, his outlook and his comments. So with that, um, I'm going to introduce you to Colonel Kevin Sixer, who retired here. And Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Chair. Um, as, as you're saying, uh, Dr. Seal was really good. He's the uh, Knowledge Translation Center uh, guru for our consortium, and uh, he was heavily involved in the previous podcast series because those 11 podcasts were 11 researchers that had submitted manuscripts for the special edition of Brain Injury Journal that's uh, actually hitting the streets here very soon. It's already out on, uh, on on digits, but it's coming out paper paper version here soon. So we thought we would switch it up a little bit, put a different uh, host in. So I've been brought in pretty much for humor and sarcasm. Uh, those are my, my two specialties, but uh, I, I've been with Limbic Sensi for going on seven years now. Started when it was only Sensi, and now it's Limbic Sensi. I've also been a uh, participant in uh, four of the different studies to include the longitudinal study, and will be in the new uh, longitudinal add-on study, which is gonna look at long COVID effects on people with TBI. So that'll be my fifth study. So I've been involved. I'm, I'm currently the director of the coordinating center, which for lack of a better term is kind of like the air traffic controller at uh, Hartsfield Airport in Atlanta. I'm just making sure that none of the studies collide and all the cores work in conjunction and make sure everybody gets to where they need to go and their luggage is there when they get there. So that's kind of my job. And uh, I'm looking forward to this podcast. I got to watch all of the previous podcasts and listen in. And uh, it looked really, really fun. And I'm looking forward to, to being an uh, active member in this series. 
Absolutely. So folks, we're going to have a good time. I'm the pilot on this one. I don't have a lot of experience, but this is the engine that's pushing me. So let's get uh, three, two, one, and let's go. So first up to bat uh, is a good friend of mine, uh, Miss Cindy Laukas. Uh, Cindy um, is affiliated with the University of Montana Neural Injury Center in Missoula, Montana. I reached out to Cindy a while back. She does a lot of uh, research and engagement with a lot of different uh, TBI and psychological health um, populations. I thought she would be a really neat one to bring on and Cindy, it's good to see you. So uh, tell us a little about yourself and what you do. Uh, hi, thanks for having me today. Um, well, I have been working in clinical research pretty much most of my adult career, probably almost 30 years. Most of it in neuroscience, neurological injury, neurosurgery, um, psychiatry, and more recently brain injury, I guess for the past seven years. Um, and I became the director of the Neural Injury Center about six or seven years ago. And in, before that, we had a really small translational research group that was four or five people and really focused on rapid translation of basic science. And when I became the director, I decided to change things up a bit and created a much bigger network that operates with a lot of individuals on campus and off campus that have specialties in different aspects of brain injury. Um, and so we, we have people from physiatry, physical therapy, neuropsych, vestibular specialists, balance, um, cognitive testing, speech and language. Um, let's see, neuroscience, basic neuroscience, um, clinical research, and then we have a committee of veteran advisors, which um, Char is actually part of that board. Um, and so we work as a team um, and I'm the director. And so I'm kind of an air traffic controller in the neural injury center as well. So that's kind of the short version. Um, actually, as you were reeling off all of those uh, departments or specialties, it kind of reminded me of Sensi because in, in Sensi we had roughly 11 studies and we were we were coming at TBI from every direction from from the eye with the ocular um, we came from the inner ear with the vestibular study and mountain home uh, we were doing a basic science we were hitting hitting poor mice on the head uh, I could I could imagine them with little football helmets trying to get them to crash into each other uh, studying how that was uh, creating tau we were coming at it from every direction. So the question I would have, what lessons have you learned uh, in your years of experience and working with all these different specialists and getting them to, to play as a team, so to speak? I mean, everybody has their own specialty and everybody wants to look at everything through their own specialty. How do you get them to play as a team? It's a really good question. And it's one that I thought a lot about before I took this approach. I had actually, I've worked in hospitals before I took this job at the university and I had created with a neurosurgeon kind of a community-based um, consortium around brain injury. And so in, I was fortunate to have been in that role because I was able to identify people who were very mission-centric around the problem of brain injury. And so when I moved into becoming the director, I kind of was able to handpick who those individuals were that I knew that they played well with others, um, that they were very committed to the mission first. And so when I created this, it's, it's a network, but it's kind of a working board 
when I created it, I had the good fortune to kind of know who I was going to be working with. Um, and that they were hand selected partly because of their ability to get along with each other, but also because I had seen years of their commitment to brain injury. And that's kind of where we keep it. Um, been fortunate. It's this network has been functioning for about five years, pretty successfully, um, really in a collegial kind of handoff manner. It's interesting, the interdisciplinary component, you know, you have to, you have to play ball together, you know, like someone like a, a psychologist versus a neurologist versus someone, let's say physical therapy, you're all going to look at, at TBI and measure a little bit differently. But I had a, a mentor of mine tell me one time, you know, it's everything above the shoulders, you know, you have to work together with a head injury. But um, tell us a little bit about the, the Neural Injury Center and kind of the population that you serve and, and kind of what, uh, what the NIC does. So we do um, screening, we do research, and we do outreach and education, both clinical and public education. So our screening consists primarily of screening people with mild TBI. We do occasionally get people with moderate TBI or someone that had a severe TBI but has really lasting chronic symptoms. Um, we don't have a physician on our staff. We have physicians in our network that we refer to that also offer some free services to our patients. Um, but we um, are, our organization was created originally to help student veterans get through school and reintegrate into society, basically, but particularly stay in school, um, and particularly those with brain injuries and neurological injuries and, and PTSD. And so we started there, um, and then we expanded a little bit more to really any veteran that came to us and then to athletes. Um, that was more of an kind of an ask from the university. We, we, we screened some of the, the university athletes. And then if we have openings, we will also screen um, people from the community. But there, it's kind of a prioritized system. There are, you know, of course, clinics in town and stuff that have concussion clinics. We are a little bit more specialized. We have a lot more specialized equipment. So for example, someone from athletic training may come to us, a physician or a trainer and say, we don't, we can't decide if this person should return to play. And so our clinicians will do additional testing, give them the results, and then that helps them to make a decision. So we don't actually provide a diagnosis. We just provide them with a lot of test results to go forward. Um, and then um, we do a lot of um, education to the public. And particularly, we focused a lot on veteran issues and, and veteran family issues over the years. Um, and then we also do, um, we do research and that has evolved a lot. Initially, like I said, we did translational research and we did a lot of work with biomarkers. We had some investigators that created a, a virtual reality cognitive testing system, which was really cool. Um, those individuals left the university for various different reasons. And so we recreated things. And now our research has a much more clinical focus. Um, you know, most of the projects we're working on have more of a cl clinical mission. So for example, one of our investigators just got a grant awarded to study a, a remote vestibular testing system. So it, it, it does vestib both 
it's, it's designed for vestibular testing, but ultimately it can also be used for treatment. And we'll be working with um, veterans and active service members and uh, an advisory group of kind of um, potential consumers of this. Um, that's an example of something that we do. It's pretty, that project alone is pr pretty multidisciplinary. Um, and then um, let's see, another thing we're working on is creating a, a collaborative database of all the investigators that are in, involved with the Neural Injury Center, putting their uh, putting data on our patients into one database so that we can all access it from all these different angles, be that PT or from our eye tracking, or um, which we didn't have before. And we had to kind of create it from the ground up, much like everything we do in Montana. Um, so, but it's, um, it's coming along. Um, let's see what else. We created a specialized software system. We, um, using the Royal We, one of our investigators, created a special uh, software system for balance testing that's really nice. Takes just five, 10 minutes, puts out a really nice report that the patients can understand really well. Um, those are some examples of the kind of things we do. How long would a um, assessment take? Because a lot of things that you're mentioning sound exactly like a lot of the testing that we're doing uh, on the baseline testing for our, our longitudinal study, which mm -hmm. uh, with all of the questionnaires and all of the tests and everything, it's a, it's a good eight hour day for, for our participants. I was wondering how long, mm -hmm. how long is, is the assessment that you guys do? Well, that's a good question. Um, the way we do it, partly because of the way we're structured, a lot of our, um, all of us are kind of, not, not me, but many of the individuals involved in this are kind of volunteering their time within another position. So they're, um, you know, teaching or they're doing some other research or they have a, pract a clinical practice. And so we schedule, we have to schedule in a bit of a, we don't do everything at once. We, we schedule, we try to complete everything within two weeks of each other. Um, a lot of it usually happens within a week, but sometimes say the some piece of cognitive testing or something is an outlier there, but we don't bring them in for like eight hours straight. We basically do things in little hour long segments. Um, our eye tracking takes roughly 45 minutes. Our balance testing takes about 15, 20 altogether. We were using an, uh, an online cognitive testing system for baseline that took about 30 minutes. Um, and then in, based on that, they may be referred to more extensive neuropsychological testing. Um, so, and we, and it's very specific what they may go through. Say if they come to us, they already have a, uh, confirmed diagnosis, but they're dealing with a chronic symptom, we will not necessarily have them go through the first diagnostic piece because we know we already know they have a diagnosis. So their testing will be more based on the symptoms that they're currently experiencing or that, you know, maybe a trainer says we don't, you know, their balance seems really off or, or a very specific symptom-based approach. Yeah, programs okay, like that are, oh, I'm sorry, Kevin, go ahead. Uh, uh, just before I forget it, I was going to ask, what type of initial, for instance, we have a lot of, a lot of our participants come in and don't have on their record per se, on their health record anywhere located, 
that they actually had a TBI, a TBI diagnosis. They had that they had an event, but never had an official TBI diagnosis. So we have come up with a really good comprehensive, it's probably one of the best things we've done in our seven years, and it's a potential concussive event questionnaire. And it's a lot of, uh, I forget what the term is, if you answer one way, then it goes to another set of questions. Uh, and, and that's probably one of the best things we've done. But what do you guys use um, if they come in, they don't have it necessarily on the record, but they say I had an event. Uh, what, how, how do you guys go about that diagnosis? Um, well, we've done different things. Um, when I did a study actually out in the community looking for kind of the prevalence and um, barriers to brain injury screening, it was in a tribal community. And there's really no data or anything out there. And a lot of people had nothing there. We, we use this tool that the DOD had created some time ago that had, you know, certain, uh, certain thing, if this happened, this happened, this happened. And it was kind of the best tool at the time. Now we, um, we do have a number of, number of um, you know, we do a complete history, all that. We have, we created a form for ocular motor testing that has a lot of detail about the event itself or the events that they sustained a head injury, whether that be blast related or, or you know, closed head injury. Um, so we, um, but in, it isn't um, our job in this case to provide the diagnosis. Um, so we gather the data and then through all of our testing, we, we provide that to the physician, their physician, or if we refer them to someone and say, you know, compared to just in simple terms, compared to a person without a head injury and what we know about head injured people, this is what they look like and this is where they fall on the spectrum, but we don't actually provide their diagnosis. But we see, particularly with veterans, so many of them came out of the military and they checked a box and or you know filled out a few pieces of paper, but did not have a thorough exam for head injury, even though they may have sustained or been exposed to a lot of blast forces in particular. Um, and so we, um, again, we're not the arbiters of, is this a diagnosis or not? But we try to do very thorough testing so that um, we can split that hair because as you know, with um, mild TBI, it can be kind of tricky to sort it out. And I think I'd be very interested in seeing that. I don't, is that accessible? Your, your yeah, I, and I was just thinking, this, thinking that exactly. After this, uh, you know, uh, Char can give me your email and I will forward you a copy of what, what we use. I'd love to see that. Yeah, it's a great, yeah, I'd, great I'd love to get your feedback on that. Yeah, I'd love to see it. When you were talking about the incidents and prevalences, you know, I, I was one of those guys, you know, that was heard a long time ago, you know, three, eight hour sessions of neuropsychological batteries. And that's assuming that TBI is a primary injury and maybe not a secondary injury behind a more primary life-threatening injury. And I don't blame a lot of people sometimes leaving the service because they want to get out and they want to get moving. So they don't check the block and that ultimately falls on them. But, but I, but I do understand so when you come to a place like Montana, where we have you know very high incidence and prevalence of, of, of traumatic brain injury, a very lot of vulnerable populations, and, and a veteran coming back on campus with a family just newly separated from the military is in a lot of ways a, a vulnerable population. You're coming into a very, a very different ballgame, you know, where you're having to, to pay attention. The rules that you're used to don't apply anymore when it comes here. And I know that one. I know that one firsthand. Um, and then you toss in, as I said, Montana's, you know, the fourth largest state with a very 
challenging physical geography and a very challenging socioeconomic demographic as well. Elaborate on some of the challenges and successes that uh, that you've had, you know, in the NIC and working with sort of student populations and maybe other populations as the NIC serves. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the the biggest challenge is really not with our immediate um, network. It's more with the challenge of living in a rural state is, is a lot of what we face is, you know, lack of access, lack of specialists, um, lack of consistent educational platforms to, you know, educate, say, parents or, or spouses about head injury. Um, so we're working on all of those things, you know, trying to do more of that. Um, but for example, um, when we, you know, we encounter someone that maybe doesn't have a primary care physician or, you know, is not hooked up that way and we need to make a referral, sometimes that can be really challenging because it's pretty limited. We have there are currently two brain injury specialized physiatrists in the whole state of Montana. They're both on our board and in our network, but one of them is retiring. So that's not to say there aren't more neurologists and things like that, but they're often booked out for, you know, six, six months. Um, so in a sense, we've been filling a gap where that is occurring. Um, at least we're giving people some support and getting them intermediary steps while that's happening. And, and that's been really greatly appreciated. Um, a lot of people we see said that the most thorough um, testing and um, care that they've received since they had a head injury, but we're not, you know, we're not like a super busy clinical practice, just running hundreds of people through every day. So we are able to give people a kind of quote Cadillac you know, experience because we do have the time and we do have the will to do that. Um, but that's, that's the biggest challenge. I think when COVID started, we had to go mostly virtual. Um, and so that was challenging because neurological exams are not easy to do virtually, but we did have sort of a physical, neurological, physical therapist that was kind of doing some initial parts of that but we were able to switch over most everything we did to virtual, including we had these glasses we were sending out to do this eye tracking testing. But then people started, their dogs started chewing up our glasses and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> we decided uh, this probably isn't working too well. So Some challenges soon, we don't think about. <laughs> yeah, right. So as soon as we, and you know, they were like 150 bucks a crack or something. So we decided, um, that um, as soon as we could go back in person, we did. Um, but we were able to do that. And in doing that, it did open up a few doors for people who can't, you know, who are so far across the state, maybe they couldn't get to even to Missoula um, in a reasonable fashion. No, I mean, you, you said it yourself right there. I mean, you guys are filling a, a gap for a very essential need that doesn't exist. I, I sometimes... And you know, for those of that are listening out there, it, you know, living in a rural a rural state is very different than a, than an urban population. When I was in D.C. a while back for a trip, I bet I could throw a baseball and hit five, ten neurologists within a mile of where I was. Out here, we we have maybe five, six in the whole state. And when you factor in that size, another challenge that Montana has, and and other rural states as well, is is you have different medical systems that maybe aren't always on the same page. I'm not saying they're competing per se, but you maybe have a federal system like the the Veterans Administration. 
or you have you know private and public hospitals, you have certain nonprofits, uh, entities like the Neural Injury Center at the University of Montana, and you know trying to navigate that system where maybe these other systems are talking you as a veteran and you're having to rely on your, your caregiver. Maybe you're on the, the North 40, you know, missing uh, you know obviously some other some other issues at play in TBI secondary, and you don't you kind of fall through the cracks. That's why the the work of these institutions as such is is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any? Uh, when you and I were kind of talking about this offline, we're going to sort of sort of shift gears here a little bit because we're on the still on the veterans thing. Tell us a little bit about this study um, that you've been doing with the law enforcement. Oh um, well, it's not really a study, well, study but, but, but the yeah, yeah. outreach. But, um, I don't want the IRB to come after me, so no. <laughs> ah, yeah, <laughs> not really a study. Um, it, was, it was kind of a, started with just a passion of mine that I I felt like um, there are probably too many veterans ending up in in prison or in jail, um, sometimes for the wrong reason that had head injuries or had maybe PTSD or things like that. And um, I also felt that that law enforcement um, could potentially benefit from just having more um, education around that, around these issues that veterans and specific other people do as well. Um, including TBI, PTSD, and suicide risk. Um, and they also overlap a lot and entwine a lot. So um, I approached um, a Sheriff's Department in Cascade County, and they were willing to partner with me on this. And I've got three, uh, three officers and the sheriff who've helped. Um, and they... Uh, um, they're all combat veterans and they're all officers of the law and different, there's a, a sergeant, there's a lieutenant, there's a detective, deputy sheriff. And they kind of worked with me through like designing this course and it, it we just did a focus group um, in Missoula about a month ago. And then we've got it, um, we've got the go ahead from POST, which is the body for police department education um, that they have to kind of approve every course that their officers get. Um, and we got kind of got the thumbs up last week to go ahead with what we're doing. We, we were able to now kind of go around the state, just submit it to them. And then they'll, they'll be the officers of the law will be able to receive it for credit, um, which is always more attractive than just kind of going, um, so it's been a really, really good process. I think it's going to be, um, we've, we've had nothing but positive feedback from, you know, uh, just about every aspect of every angle that looks at this kind of thing that, you know, this education is really important, particularly because a lot of law enforcement are veterans. And so they, are, they may be suffering from these things themselves. It's highly likely in many cases. And so it's a double-edged short sword, but they may also that may also make them really ideal to be um, really effective and compassionate in a crisis situation with a veteran. So that that is very interesting to me, because eh? my 23-year career in the army, I was a military policeman, uh, and, and the people you deal with, you have no reason why uh, they're behaving the way they're behaving, and it, it, it could range from A to Z while they're doing what they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. Second reason is very interesting to me. My son has worked at Williams County Sheriff's Office, which is in Williston, North Dakota, 
for the last 11 years. And now he's a member of the North Dakota Bureau of Investigation. And so I can, I would love to learn more about this program and then maybe uh, give you a segue or a headway into, uh, if you're thinking about taking it outside of Montana, you got that big uh, rectangular state right beside yours called North Dakota. Yeah, um, yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's that is that that seems very interesting. Uh, the maybe one of the last questions uh, as we're wrapping up. Um, and you mentioned it. I don't know if you guys recruit for your participants, or they come in and they they, they say, "I want to do this." How part of it? What I'm talking about is how do you reach out? We we do. We have our website. We have the podcast. We have a Facebook page. But a lot of times, it seems like we're talking to ourselves. How do you reach outside of that echo chamber? and get to the population that you actually need to get to, which is the people with TBI? Yeah. Um, well, we are not super aggressive because one, um, we're not that big. So, you know, we can only handle a smaller flow, but we, we are, we do it through a couple of things. I'm very, I, I work a lot with our vet's office on campus. Um, and then there's a, a, group in town that does counseling for combat veterans that we are in touch with. Um, and then we, the education and outreach that we do often brings people to us. We have a website, um, which we're actually in the process of updating, like everyone is always doing with their website, but <laughs> it's, um, we're, um, so we have that. Um, and then I found that a lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of people I get are like, Somebody told me that you were the people that, you know, um, so we don't do like advertising per se. We did that a bit consciously because we, Missoula is a relatively small community. We didn't want to be aggressive to maybe physicians, clinics, or people who were doing this, not in the same way we are with the same levels, maybe specialization, specialized equipment, et cetera. But um, we were kind of careful about how we did that because we want to maintain our friends in the community and be able to refer to them and things. So it, you know, I'm sure you've seen maybe two when COVID started, nobody wanted to come out of the house and do anything, even if they needed to, a lot of people. And so you just, you know, we did see a, a little bit of a downturn in how many people were showing up um, for a while. It's kind of starting to come back though. Well, I'll tell you what, Cindy, that's uh you wear a lot of hats out there, for sure, for sure. And you're getting it done. And folks, that's what it's about. I mean, you have to adjust to your surroundings. You have to adapt, work with your partners and stakeholders, get on the same page, push forward, and you know, and overcome something like traumatic brain injury and some of the sort of unfortunate sequelae and other things that, that come with it. Um, well, Cindy, thank you for, for being here today. Really, uh, really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule and, and kind of hanging out with us. Hopefully, uh, we'll get a thumbs up and we'll be back next week or next month, rather. We'll... We'll see how that goes, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And for those of you that are listening out there, if you, if you need help, folks, talk to people. You know, if you if you don't want to talk to your family or you don't feel comfortable going to a, a medical facility or something of that nature, but if you think there's a problem, you can check out the Olympic Sensei's website. We have links on there for assistance. Obviously, someplace like the Neural Injury Center or other entities within your community. And you know, you're you're, you're your own best you're your best caregiver. You know, if something's there reach out and, and, and if we can't point you or we can't to help you specifically, we can definitely point you in the right direction. And that's what it's about. Once again, working as an interdisciplinary team to overcome this injury and move us all forward. So with that, uh, I appreciate the working with you again, Kevin. 
always a pleasure. And then Ron in the box up top. I guess we don't have the team that remains unseen this time, actually, because I guess one has come down and, and Miss Cook <laughs> has moved on. But hey, thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, hopefully you like this one, season two, and we're gonna we'll do it again next month. So with that, we'll see you next uh, next month for the second uh, edition of the Abstract Veteran Series podcast. Until then, take care, take care of each other. And check out our website if you need some help. You guys take care. Thank you. Thank you to Cindy Laucas for joining Char Gatlin and Kevin Sickinger today on the Abstract Veterans Podcast. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Veterans is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com and follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Veterans, The Abstract Doctors, and The Abstract Athlete. See you soon with our next episode.